Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Morning. So this is a, a little bit of a tradition for us. If you're a guest, we've been doing this thing called an annual sermon reading. I'm doing it probably for six or seven years now. Hmm. I was just told, informed that we started this in 2016. And so this is seven, seventh year, Johnny. So Johnny's our, our official record keeper here. And so we've been doing this. So this must be the seventh time that we've done this. This morning, I'm reading a sermon by Tim Keller. Many of you have probably heard of him. Tim had a, a, a really fruitful ministry in New York City in Manhattan. He went home to be with the Lord uh, this year after about suffering from cancer. And so Tim planted Redeemer Church along with a group of people and God really blessed their work. He's written a number of books that have been really influential and really certainly helped me personally. Co-founder of the Gospel Coalition and the sermon that I'm reading this morning is a sermon that he actually preached at the Gospel Coalition National Conference in the early 2000s. So this is the sermon that I'll read this morning from Galatians 6, boasting in nothing except the cross. You with me? All right, you got to listen today. In some ways, Galatians is the most gospel-centric book in the Bible. It isn't that the Bible doesn't give us the gospel everywhere you look. Or that Romans doesn't have a fuller exposition of the gospel. gospel. Rather, no other book in the Bible concentrates as intensely on the role of the gospel in the life and ministry of a Christian. 
No other book talks about how important it is that the gospel sits at the very center of the Christian's life, not just something that the non-Christian needs in order to get saved. Martin Luther says something in his commentary on Galatians that I think think summarizes very well the point of the book. That's what Martin Martin Luther says. The truth of the gospel is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. (laughs) That's a very Luther kind of thing to say. But that's pretty much what the book of Galatians is about. When we get to Galatians 6, however, it seems like a set of detached statements, standalone proverbs, or simply a bunch of things that Paul just wanted to say. And I must admit that that's how I looked at it when I preached on it before. But after further study, I now think chapter 6 hangs together admirably with the rest of the book, especially if I include the last verse of chapter 5 which many commentators, and I would agree with them, think should have been the first verse of chapter 6. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. With this small change, the first part focuses on a heart condition that needs to be addressed at the behavioral level, and the last part gives attention to how that heart condition can be addressed by the gospel at the identity level. So let's look at Galatians 6, starting in 526. Up until now, Paul's had two basic concerns, a doctrinal concern, a situational concern. Doctrinal concern, situational concern. The doctrinal concern was a fear that his his readers were losing their grip on the doctrine of justification. The situational concern was that they weren't living together in unity. He fuses these two concerns here at the end, using the gospel as the key to that unity. Starting at 526 and throughout the first part of the chapter, Paul calls for a particular kind of relationship to exist among them. He talks about a heart condition that needs to be resisted at the behavioral level and then solved At the identity level, what is that heart condition? He says what it is in 526. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I'd like to look at this verse in parts. First, let us not become conceited. So here, I'm following the commentaries on Galatians of such old stalwarts as F.F. Bruce, John Stott, Donald Guthrie, people I teased on, you might say, when I became a new Christian. They say that the Greek word kenodoxia, which is translated here conceited, it means empty of glory. And would be better translated as an older English word, vainglory. Vainglorious. That would be a more precise translation, but unfortunately not of much help to contemporary English speakers. To be empty of glory means 
as Bruce describes it, that you sense an emptiness inside and you're desperately trying to fill that emptiness with affirmation and recognition from other people. You're desperate to prove yourself. And note that Paul is speaking to all of his readers, that he's describing this as a natural human heart condition, not just the condition of an insecure person. So we need to interpret this at a theological level, not a psychological level. Romans 1 and 2 tell us that all human beings know deep down inside that we were made to serve and honor God and nothing else, which means every part of our being has been created and designed to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. The approval of God, the recognition of God, is what we need. And each of us has this cave, this cavity, this God-shaped hole aching to be filled with the well done of God. Augustine talked about it being a God-shaped hole. What I'm talking about is a little more specific here. What we need is the recognition of God. And because we don't have that, because we've turned away from God, we're desperately trying to fill that cavity at the expense of everyone else. In other words, instead of going out into our relationships to serve, we go out with the logic of the market. How can I profit from this relationship? How can I bolster my fragile sense of being a good person? How do I build myself up even at the expense of you? Second, provoking one another, envying one another. Stott reads it this way. Envying one another means to compare yourself to another person, to feel inferior, and to resent it. It's commonly known as an inferiority complex. Provoking one another means to be aggressive, to compete when, with others in the service of one's ego. It's commonly known as a superiority complex, in a sense. On the one hand is a person with a superiority complex who says, I can beat you. <laughs> On the other hand is someone with an inferiority complex who says, I can't beat you, and I hate it. But in both cases, each person has entered the relationship not to serve, but asking, how does this help me feel? How does this help me or not help me shore up my sense of self-worth? How does this help me fill that emptiness so I can feel like I'm important, so I can feel better about myself? We go out into every situation constantly comparing ourselves to others. Because it's always about us. We're actually going out to use and exploit people not to serve and love them. So with this in mind, we move into Galatians 6. And what we see in verses 1 through 6 is that Paul is saying, in a sense, here's how I want you to live instead. 
In verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Almost all commentators agree that when Paul says, you who are spiritual, what he means is you with the Holy Spirit. So he's not talking about these elite spiritual types. He's talking about all of us. He's talking about all genuine Christians. But notice when he says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, restore him. This is not 1 Corinthians 5. This is not Matthew 18. Paul isn't talking about someone who sinned against you, and he isn't talking about restoring a relationship. He says, restore him, and he says this only if the person is caught or trapped in a trespass, a transgression. Suppose you see a person who obviously has a bad habit, a character flaw that's always pulling him or her down. Maybe they're always blowing up relationships because of their abrasiveness. Maybe they can't keep a job because of their irresponsibility. What does Paul say? If you're humble and you're not self-righteous, that is, if you have the proper attitude about yourself, you can actually move into that relationship to serve the other person. However, if you're vainglorious, you look at someone like that and you say, I'm not going to get anything out of that relationship. A vainglorious person goes into every relationship weighing the cost-benefit analysis. Am I going to get from this relationship what I'm going to put in? Is this person going to help me meet other people that I'd like to meet? Is this person going to make me feel good about myself? We don't want to have anything to do with someone with serious problems because we're too busy trying to reach our own goals. We don't want to spend a lot of time with a person who's a black hole where you give and you give and they just don't seem to get any better. Of course, sometimes we actually do want to get into a relationship with somebody who's a mess because we can be the one who constantly rescues them. The old Alcoholics Anonymous group approach was right about that point. They're called enabling relationships. Such people need us, which makes us feel good about ourselves. But it's also vainglorious. We don't really want to restore them. We want to keep them dependent on us. If your attitude toward yourself were right, if you weren't vainglorious, you could move out into relationships as a servant. You, wouldn't, you would neither use people by keeping them dependent on you or avoid people because they're a total wreck. Paul is calling for a kind of relationship that takes a unique sort of heart, a unique sort of identity, one that's been healed of the vainglory that's characteristic of all sinners, one that's been freed from the need to use other people to inflate your own sense of self-worth to cover over that feeling that you're alienated from God, to make up for the fact that you don't have God saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Without that affirmation, you're left trying to hear how great you are from everybody else. You're left using others by keeping them dependent on you or avoiding them to find somebody else who ain't so draining. When we come to Galatians 6.2 and we read... 
bear one another's burdens, we usually think of that as a standalone idea. But it's almost certainly referring back to verse 1. Here's the metaphor. If somebody is struggling to carry a 100-pound chest, how do you help? You grab one side, they grab the other. You can only help by taking some of the load upon yourself. You grab one end, they grab the other, you each end up carrying 50 pounds. The full weight isn't on either of you. If two of you pick it up, each carries 50. If four of you pick it up, each carries 25 pounds. The point of the metaphor is that you can never help somebody without some of that person's burden falling on you. And that's something many of us don't want to happen. Jonathan Edwards has a great essay on helping the poor, in which he deals with common objections to serving the poor. For instance, objection. I'd love to help the poor, but I can't afford it. Response. If we're never obliged to relieve others' burdens, except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? Edwards is pointing out that when we say, I can't afford it, what we really mean is, I can't afford it without burdening myself. That's the point. That's what Galatians 6.2 tells us. There is no way to help someone in trouble, someone in need, in this case financial trouble, without some of that person's financial burden falling on you. It's called sacrifice. Paul's talking about a kind of relationship here that we're not capable of on our own. In our own nature, we can only help people when it helps us feel good about ourselves. Those of us who raise money for various charitable purposes, helping the needy and the poor in our community, for example, they know how often people do that. We know that people often give primarily to feel good about themselves. We'll still take your money. <laughs> They're doing it to the degree that it builds them up but not to the degree that it creates a burden on them. They're vainglorious. Galatians 6.3 is often read as a standalone statement too, but I think it's all one idea. Paul says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. That's true on its own, of course. It's true as a standalone proverb. If you think you're better than you really are, you're in self-deception. But Paul is connecting it here and saying that you're never going to live this kind of servant life. You're never going to move out into relationships really trying to serve others to build up your self-image unless there's a deep humility in you. I love how categorical the Bible is about this point. And in fact, Paul says, now, as a Christian, remember what the gospel says. You're nothing. It's like the drive-by teaching Jesus does in Luke 11. He's talking to his disciples about prayer. He's essentially telling them, my father will give you things if you ask for them. But then he says, after all, if you who are evil 
give good gifts to your children when they ask you, how much else would your heavenly father wait? (laughs) You who are evil, who's evil? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the apostles. Oh, and by the way, you're evil. Yes, you, the apostles, you're evil. And that's half the gospel. You're evil, you're nothing. But you don't overcome that by seeking relationships that make you feel good about yourself. It isn't by moving out into every relationship, figuring out how that person, how that relationship can build up your flagging, fragile sense of self-worth. That's desperate. That's sad. And it isn't going to work because your fundamental problem isn't other people. Your sense of self-worthing is flagging and fragile because you're not related to God like you should be. No amount of acclamation, no amount of applause, no amount of accolades from everyone in the world will fill that hole. Nothing will heal your heart except God himself looking at you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Verses 4 and 5 are almost a footnote. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Every commentator or preacher I've heard takes, two different, takes these two verses a little differently. Paul's trying to say, if you really had a healed heart, if you didn't need to always compare yourself to other people to bolster your fragile ego, then you could still have a sense in which you make progress. Not because you're better than the other person but because you have progressed in bearing your own load. The word load here, it's not the same word as the burden used in verse 2. The word burden gets at a crushing weight. The word load is more like luggage, a backpack, something you take with you on a trip. Many years ago, an older pastor helped me to see what this means. There was a family in my church who were professing Christians, but it was a very flawed family. I expressed a certain amount of irritation with them. And the pastor responded to me like this. There's special grace and there's common grace. Some of us, because of God's common grace, have had great families. We received a lot of love growing up. And now... We have a fair amount of self-control, and we're relatively well-adjusted. So when we become Christians, we come in at, say, about a three on a character scale from zero to ten. After five years in growing in Christ, we've improved to a (laughs) 3.5. Now here's this family, and they've had a really rough go of it. Both the husband and the wife come from terrible families themselves. Then they give their lives to Christ. They come into the Christian faith at the common grace level of a zero. They're wrecks. And after five years in the faith, they're now at 1.5. They've made some significant changes, even more so than us. But when you look at them and you say, I'm twice as loving as they are. And I have twice the self-control that they do. What you're forgetting is that they have their load and you have your load. 
And at the end of John's gospel, Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he hints that Peter's going to die for his faith. And I don't know whether Peter quite gets what Jesus is saying, but Jesus basically says to him, there's some bad stuff coming, Peter. Peter looks at Jesus, sees John walking along, and he says, what about him? And I just love how Jesus said, Jez says, what's that, what's that to you? You follow me. And I'm almost sure that that's what C.S. Lewis had in mind when Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia constantly says to people, I only tell you your own story. Don't ask me about the other person's story. That person has their own load. So what Paul is saying here is, get your eyes on God. Stop looking at everybody else. Stop using everybody else. Some years ago, I read a meditation by Tom Howard, a Catholic writer and brother of the famous missionary Elizabeth Elliot. It really made a difference to me. I want to paraphrase it as best as I remember it. Howard said, to look at the temple, God planned every little architectural detail about the temple or the tabernacle. And everything is laid out precisely to its specs, to his specs. But when you get to the center which in a certain sense is the center of the universe, the very center of reality, what do you get? No image. There's no image to bow down to. In fact, as Howard said, there's really not a person at all. There's an event. Because at the heart of reality is a gold slab, the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, over the law where the blood is sprinkled. God is saying to us that at the very heart of reality, at the very heart of creation, and the very heart of redemption is my life for yours. Now sin makes us operate on this principle. Your life for me. I'm going to make you sacrifice for me. For my interests, for my self-image. You will sacrifice your needs to serve mine. But Jesus Christ came into the world saying, my life for you. My life to serve you. My life poured out for you. I sacrifice for you. He says those are the two ways in which you can live your life. And every single day, Every single hour, you decide to operate on one of those two principles. Parents, you've seen this. You have this wonderful plan for the day, and then something happens. Your kid gets sick. Your kid has a need, melts down, and you really need to spend time with your child, which is going to be. You can die and say, my life for you. You can sacrifice yourself for that child in a sense, and you can have that child grow up feeling loved. In other words, you can die so your child will live. Or you can never sacrifice. You can never die to any of yourself in your parenting life. You can constantly say, sorry, I have my needs, I have my schedule, I have my goals, and you're not going to get in the way. And that child will grow up broken. All real love is substitutionary sacrifice. My life for yours. And essentially, that's what Paul tells us. You can live life that way, and you can go into relationships that way, my life for yours, or you can go the old way, the vainglorious way, your life for mine. 
What a, an incredible picture. But how do we get there? How do we fill that cavity? That's what the last part of Galatians 6 talks about. And here's Paul's summary, I believe, where he's fusing both his doctrinal and his situational concerns. You're a whole new person, a new creation, if you learn to boast in nothing else but... Anybody know? The cross of Christ. What is a vainglorious person? It's someone who's always boasting in all kinds of other things. Learning to boast in Christ is what makes you a new person, a new creation. And that's what heals you. And then the world can't control you anymore. That's what he's saying. So let's break this down. It's amazing. First, if you want to have the deep healing the gospel can bring to your heart, to your very identity, you have to understand the doctrine of the cross. What does Paul mean when he says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that before you get anywhere else, before you do all the psychological moves, anything else, you have to understand the cross. Your life will not be changed, the world will not be changed, unless you understand what the cross is all about. Unless you understand the doctrine of the cross, the doctrine of the atonement. Doctrine comes first. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter, Hey, Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter responds, you're the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is rather happy about that answer, saying it's a revelation from God that flesh and blood didn't teach that to you, Peter. And then Jesus immediately starts talking about the cross. He immediately starts teaching that he has to go to Jerusalem and suffer to be tortured and killed and to rise again. And Peter begins to get really upset. And he rebukes Jesus. No, you're the son of God. You're a great teacher. You're the Messiah. As soon as Jesus starts talking about the cross, Peter says, no, 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 no. You wait a minute, Jesus. I don't get that. What are you talking about? And Jesus rebukes him, says, get behind me, Satan. You know why? Because when you get the doctrine of the cross wrong, you're in the grip of Satan. When you get the doctrine of the cross wrong, you're doing Satan's bidding. You're Satan's missionary, not Christ's. There are many people, including some in the church, who get the doctrine of the cross wrong. And yet it's the basis for everything. Jesus says, I can't even begin to deal with you until you get the doctrine of the cross right. Not only that, if you don't get the doctrine of the cross right, you're doing Satan's will. So this is extraordinarily important. If you read the Gospels and think of them as biographies, at some point you'll look at them and think, this is kind of weird. If these are biographies, why would they give 30, 40, even 50% of the entirety of the book to the last week of Jesus' life? That doesn't seem like a very good biography. And the answer is, they're not really biographies. Why do they give most of the book to documenting the last week of his life? Because of the cross. Jesus Christ came to go to the cross. It's central. If you don't understand the doctrine of the cross, none of the other things that we're talking about, none of these incredible things that Paul mentions in Galatians 6 are even possible. 
Second, you must be willing to embrace, accept, and feel the offense of the cross. You guys with me? Nod if you're with me. You're with me. You don't get the cross. You don't understand it. You've never come to grips with the doctrine of the cross unless you feel the offense of it. I'm even talking to those who were raised in the faith. You never remember a time in which you weren't a follower of Jesus. Look at Galatians 6.12. He's saying the same thing as he did in 5.11. Brothers, those who preach circumcision want to remove the offense of the cross. He's talking about people who were afraid that the Jews would reject them if their Gentile converts weren't circumcised. But it's bigger than that. The cross isn't just offensive to Jews. It's offensive to everybody. Bertrand Russell prominent British philosopher, 20th century. He said, I do not myself feel that any person who is profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. And he called the cross the doctrine of cruelty. That's a typical response to the offensiveness of the doctrine of the cross. Why is the cross so offensive? A lot of people in the world think religion's okay. Morality is good for us. Religion helps some people live moral lives. The doctrine of the cross, however, is offensive. Are you saying, they reply, that those of us who have worked our entire lives to keep ourselves out of the moral gutter are in the exact same place spiritually as the people who are in the gutter? You're saying that we both have to be saved in exactly the same way? How dare you? Or they might say to us, are you saying that good people in other religions who have lived good lives and are extremely moral in all their ways, if they don't believe in the cross of Christ, they're lost? How dare you? The cross of Christ is offensive. And if you haven't come to grips with it, if you haven't felt it, if you haven't ever struggled with it, don't think you get it, and therefore it's not going to change you. Third, you have to boast in it. Just last year when I was preaching to my own Presbyterian General Assembly, remember this is Tim Keller talking, not me, on 1 Corinthians 1, I came to realize that so many of the great Pauline passages about the cross are about the gospel. And Paul keeps talking about boasting, boasting boasting, boasting. What is this boasting thing? Why does Paul constantly bring this up when he's discussing the cross? Paul is saying that boasting in the cross is what turns you into a new creation, and if you boast in anything else, that makes you vainglorious. So what's boasting? Well, originally a boast was part of warfare. How do you get people to charge into almost certain death? To get soldiers to shout, let's go! You start with a boast. A ritual boast was where the leader got up and said, our hands are strong enough. Our spears are sharp enough. And everybody shouts. Ah! And they charge. It was a ritual boast. The Bible actually talks about it all the time. Exodus 15, 9, Egypt boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. 1 Kings 20, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. 
Hannah says, my mouth boasts over my enemies. A boast was how you get yourself ready, how you got the confidence to charge into battle. Now, there's different kinds of boasts. There's a Shakespearean boast, for example, where Henry V eloquently delivers the St. Crispin's Day speech, and gentlemen in England now abed will think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speak who fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Then in Ghostbusters, there's Bill Murray <laughs> saying, not quite as eloquently, this chick is toast. But a essentially, a boast is getting you to say, we have what it takes. We have the cannon. We have the spears. We have the champion. We have Goliath. He's always helpful. Here, Paul is saying that everybody has to boast in something. It's just a question of what we boast in. Jeremiah 9, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. There's no sense here that there is such a thing as not boasting. You're all boasting. We're all boasting in something. Well, what does that mean? At a psychological or theological level, a boast is your identity. What do you look to for confidence, for strength, for validation? Everybody has to find their confidence in something. Everybody has to rely on something to say, I can do it. I can do it. What's it going to be? Martin Luther said, when the chips are down, we almost instinctively point to the thing that is our confidence. In other words, when Satan accuses us, we turn to whatever we boast in. So we'll say, but I'm a good father but I'm a, I'm a good mother. But I've worked really hard. But the devil will always outflank you if you do that. You can say, well, I do this or I do that. But the fact is, our righteousness is a filthy rag. There's holes in it. It's fragile. The modern self-esteem movement, it's all about boasting. Tell yourself you're beautiful. Tell yourself you can do anything you set your mind to. Social media is filled with boasts. But what does the Bible say? We boast in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, Paul takes Jeremiah 9 and applies it to Christ. What does it mean to boast in the cross of Christ? And we're driving towards the close here. What does it mean to boast in the cross of Christ? It means three things. Pay attention to this because we're going to learn how to boast. First, it means you're seeking the applause of God. In fact, when Paul speaks about boasting in Romans 2.29, he says we're to be circumcised with a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. The word here translated as praise is literally the word for applause from God. Lewis does a riff on this in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, where he says that when you become a Christian, God looks at you and doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your flaws. Amen. But he sees you as perfect because he sees you in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel is. God looks at you, sees you in Christ and starts applauding. Church, is that amazing? You should applaud. 
here's how Lewis puts it. It's written that we shall stand before him, we shall appear, we shall be inspected. The promise of the glory is the promise, almost incredible, only possible by the work of Christ, that we shall please God. It seems impossible. A weight of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and a welcome into the heart of all things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will be open at last. All your life you've been knocking on a door. Affirm me. Love me. Tell me I'm okay. You've been sucking it out of people. Trying to get it out of people. You've been exploiting people. You've been working all of your relationships so that you can somehow steal self-acceptance from other people. And it never works. But on the gospel, the door on which you're knocking will open at last. Lewis places this experience in the future. We'll actually experience it fully on the last day when God says, welcome into the heart of all things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. Second, boasting in the cross of Christ, it means you're seeing what Jesus did for you. Jesus was beaten. He was mocked. They hit him and they said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? They spit on him. They jeered at him. Jesus Christ was jeered so that we would get the applause of God. Jesus Christ heard, depart from me, so that we could hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. To boast in the cross is to boast in the fact that in Christ, God looks at you with the only pair of eyes in the universe whose opinion matters and sees you as an absolute beauty. Finally, the door on which you've been knocking all your life has been open at last. And it's not just to revel in that, but also to see what Jesus Christ did for you to hear that, for you to get that, to make that a reality. And that will enable you to move out into all other relationships with the attitude, my life for yours. According to Donald Guthrie, when Paul says the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, he doesn't mean that the world has been put to death, but rather that the world has been put to death to him. It means the natural world ceases to have any claim on you. Money is no longer your identity. It's just money. Now you can give it away. Love relationships are not the very breath of life to you, so you don't melt down when somebody has a problem. You realize that ultimately your affirmation, your recognition, and your glory, as it were, comes from God, so you don't try to suck it out of everybody around you. Who cares what they think? Their approval doesn't drive you, and their criticism doesn't kill you. Finally, boasting in the cross is not something you do only on the inside. You also have to do it on the outside. If you're a pastor or you serve in your local church, in some capacity, what does it mean to boast in the cross in your ministry? Let me give you an example. A lot of people say to me, gee, I'd love to preach like you. This is Tim, right? <laughs> I say, why? What do you mean? And they say, oh, you quote so many great books, and I don't know how you read so much. 
I wish I could quote so many great books. Look, I have a good memory. And I want you to know that it's no virtue at all. I didn't cultivate it. It's something I was born with. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. So I have a good memory. That's great. I sound smart. But if anything, i got to be careful about that. I have to make sure I don't believe the good, people, the good things people say about me so much. And that's where I have to be careful. Because that's not boasting in the cross. That's boasting in how much I've read. That's boasting in my end notes. My footnotes. It's boasting in look at how much I know. Dick Lucas. I'll end with this story. Dick Lucas who was a minister at St. Helps Bishop's Gate for many years, I wish our church was named that, told the following story at the end of one of his sermons. In 1955, Billy Graham came to Cambridge to speak at the university mission. He had received a lot of criticism in the London press before he, re- re- before he arrived, saying, what in this world, what in the world is this backwoods American fundamentalist doing here and coming here and talking to our best and our brightest? Well, to some degree, that intimidated Billy Graham. He preached every night at Great St. Mary's in Cambridge. And for the first several nights, he really tried to bone up on his Kierkegaard and his Nietzsche and his Sartre. And he had all kinds of impressive quotes. And he tried really, really hard not to look stupid. You know what happened? He ended up looking stupid. He didn't do very well those first four nights. But the last night, Graham decided he was just going to preach about the blood of Jesus. Forget about everything else. He was going to boast in the cross. And this is how Dick Lucas, who was in attendance, recounted the experience. I'll never forget that night. It was a totally packed chapel. I was sitting on the floor and I saw the regent's professor of divinity sitting on the stage and the chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other. Now, both of these were good men in many ways, but they were completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And that night, dear Billy got up. He started in Genesis, and he went right through the whole Bible talking about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was flowing everywhere. (laughs) And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon... To everybody's shock, about 400 young men and young women came, stayed to commit their lives to Christ. At that time, the entire student body was about 10,000. And Lucas remembered meeting a young pastor in training, a Cambridge graduate, some years after. He was at Birmingham Cathedral. And over a cup of tea, Lucas said to the man, hey, where did Christian things begin for you? Oh, the man said, Cambridge, 1955. When? Billy Graham. What night? The last night. How'd it happen? He said, all I remember 
is that I walked out of Great St. Mary's thinking for the first time in my life that Christ really died for me. Lucas reflected, it was unbelievable to the deans and the professors that a man like that, preaching a sermon like that, could have totally changed the life of a young person like that. But so it did. Don't be ashamed of the cross. Boast in the cross. Not just in your inner being, but in your ministry. And watch mountains move. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to understand what it means to, to boast in the cross of Christ, to lay down our vainglorious efforts and to boast in the cross of Christ, experience its life-transforming effect in our lives that we might move out and move into relationships saying, my life for yours. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.